welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, February 8th, and Saturday the 10th feature guest conductor Gemma Nu and piano soloist Xiongjin Cho. The program includes Musica Celestis, a work for string orchestra by Aaron J. Kernis in the first performances by the Chicago Symphony. Also on the program, Piano Concerto No. 3 by Beethoven, and after intermission, The Scottish, Mendelssohn's Symphony No. 3. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on Aaron J. Kernis's Musica Celestis for Strings, a work lasting about 11 minutes. Aaron J. Kernis grew up thinking of rock and roll, Motown, funk, and disco as contemporary music. The academia in which he ultimately learned to compose was an unusually eclectic one. His main teachers included John Adams, the post-minimalist, Morton Subotnick, the electronic pioneer, Charles Warren, an unforgiving serialist, and Jacob Druckmann, a neo-romantic. Oddly, or perhaps inevitably, Kernis found his own distinctive voice within this vast stylistic range. It's partly a mixture of all these influences and, more pointedly, a reaction against the intellectual, diffident, atonal music that often filled concert halls at the time he began to make a name for himself. Audiences associate anything new with atonal and serial music, he once told the New York Times, so automatically, I'm put in a position of having to defend everything I do, of having to get through all this baggage. But from the start of his career, Kernis had no trouble winning over audiences, and he has since received the biggest awards in the business, including the Pulitzer Prize in 1998 for his string quartet No. 2, Musica Instrumentalis, and the 2002 Grommeyer, the world's top composition prize for Colored Feel, a concerto-like work for cello and orchestra. In 2012, he was awarded the Nemers Prize in Composition by Northwestern University, and in 2019, his violin concerto won Grammy Awards in the Contemporary Classical Composition and Classical Instrumental Solo categories. The style Kernis developed admits influences from both the past and the present, and like Mahler a full century before him, he views such extreme eclecticism as a virtue. I love the emotional inclusiveness of music of the past and have grown weary of the intellectualization that has limited the expression and communicativeness of so much music in this century, he wrote in the century that has now passed, presaging a new climate for music in the present day. I want everything to be included in music and for every possible emotion to be elicited. But even Mahler's sphere of reference wasn't as wide as Kernis's, which swings from Ravenna's dazzling Byzantine mosaics to the high-caffeine rock-and-roll piano playing of Jerry Lee Lewis, from Marionetti's Futurist Manifesto to John Lennon's Imagine. His online catalog of composition allows you to search by various thematic categories children, jazz and pop, Judaism, love, nature, spirit, and war. As in Mahler, the unexpected often sit side by side in Kernis's music. He says that his string quartet, Musica Celestis, from which the piece performed at these concerts is drawn, is indebted to both the 12th century composer Hildegard von Bingen and disco. 
Kernis is not only rooted in pop music, but he also still identifies with that world and tries to carry its visceral excitement into our temples of high art. I don't want classical music to be a passive experience, he once said. I want it to have as much of an impact as the best rock concerts. Throughout his career, Kernis has dared to tackle big issues. The first movement of Colored Feel was inspired by a visit to Auschwitz and Birkenau. His second symphony addresses the Persian Gulf War, new era dance with a collage tape of the sounds of broken glass and shouting voices refers to the Los Angeles riots of 1992. These are hefty works, often passionate and intense, sometimes devastatingly beautiful and occasionally politically outspoken, and they certainly counter any dismissal of Kernis as a lightweight. Kernis was one of two composers commissioned by Disney CEO Michael Eisner to write a contemporary counterpart to Mahler's Symphony of a Thousand to celebrate the new millennium. Garden of Light was premiered by the New York Philharmonic in 1999. The first composition by Kernis that the Chicago Symphony Orchestra played, Simple Songs, was a serious religious work that took its texts from several sources— the Judeo-Christian Psalms, the Abbas poet and composer Hildegard von Bingen, Jalaluddin Rumi, the Sufi mystic and poet, and the Japanese Zen master Rokan. I put them beside one another, Kernis remarked at the time of composition, because of my belief that one religion is not better than another, that these different ways of thinking are interconnected and equally valid. As Kernis commented when he won the Grawmeyer Award, music can allow us to rediscover what is deep inside ourselves, free from the precision of language and the barrage of rhetoric, free from easy answers to impossible questions. Musica Celestis is an arrangement for string orchestra made by Kernis of the second movement of his 1990 string quartet. And here is Alan J. Kernis on Musica Celestis. He writes, Musica Celestis is inspired by the medieval conception of that phrase which refers to the singing of the angels in heaven in praise of God without end. The office of singing pleases God if it is performed with an attentive mind, when in this way we imitate the choirs of angels who are said to sing the Lord's praises without ceasing. Aurelian of Réon, translated by Barbara Newman. I don't particularly believe in angels, but found this to be a potent image that has been reinforced by listening to a good deal of medieval music, especially in the soaring work of Hildegard von Bingen, 1098-1179. through This movement follows a simple, spacious melody with harmonic pattern through a number of variations like a passacaglia and modulations and is framed by an introduction and coda. Words by Aaron J. Kernis and program notes by Philip Husher on Kernis's Musica Celestis. And now on to Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 3, a work lasting about 34 minutes. We're not certain that Beethoven and Mozart ever met. Their names were mentioned in the same breath as early as 1783 when Beethoven's first composition teacher, Christian Gottlob Neffe, wrote these words in the earliest public notice of his promising pupil. This youthful genius is deserving of help to enable him to travel. He would surely become a second Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart were he to continue as he has begun. 
Nifa was suggesting that with proper sponsorship, his young pupil could tour the music capitals and entertain kings with his dazzling keyboard talent. Like most musicians, Nifa assumed that Mozart would make his reputation as a virtuoso performer, not as a composer. Nifa didn't live long enough to understand how limited his view was, but he did see his prize student take the first steps to becoming not a second Mozart, but more importantly, the mature Beethoven. It's likely that these two great composers did meet early in 1787, when the 16-year-old Beethoven made his first trip from his native Bonn to Vienna to breathe the air of a sophisticated musical city. Beethoven stayed no more than two weeks, and he may even have taken a few lessons from Mozart before his teacher was suddenly called home by the news of his mother's failing health. There is, however, no mention of Mozart in a letter Beethoven wrote at the time. When, late in 1792, Beethoven returned to Vienna, where he would stay for the rest of his life, it was to study with Haydn, because Mozart lay in an unmarked grave. We can sense disappointment in the famous words Count Waldstein inscribed in the album that served as a farewell gift from Beethoven's friends. You are going to Vienna in fulfillment of your long frustrated wishes. The genius of Mozart is still mourning and weeping over the death of her pupil. She found a refuge but no occupation with the inexhaustible Haydn. Through him she wishes once more to form a union with another. With the help of assiduous labor, you shall receive Mozart's spirit from Haydn's hands. Beethoven arrived in Vienna in the second week of November, 1792. He quickly realized that Haydn had little to teach him and took comfort in the fact that he was welcome in the same homes where Mozart was once popular. To Beethoven, Vienna was Mozart's city. The first music he published there was a set of variations for violin and piano on Sevo Ballare from Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. In March 1795, he played Mozart's D minor piano concerto, the catalog 466, at a concert organized by the composer's widow, Constanza. He later wrote cadenzas for it as well, the only concerto by Mozart he so honored. And on April 2nd, 1800, at his historic first public concert, Beethoven included a symphony by Mozart on the program, which was also supposed to have introduced his brand new piano concerto, his third in C minor. For reasons that we will never know, however, Beethoven played one of his earlier concertos instead. This C minor piano concerto is one of a handful of works in which the spirits of Mozart and Beethoven converse. To suggest, as some writers do, that Beethoven modeled his concerto after Mozart's own C minor piano concerto, the catalog 491, is to confuse the deepest kind of artistic inheritance with plagiarism. The choice of key certainly can't be taken as an homage to Mozart because Beethoven seemed unable to get C minor out of his system at the time. Think of the Patatique Sonata, or a bit later, the Funeral March from the Eroica Symphony, the Coriolan Overture, and of course, the Fifth Symphony. Obviously, Beethoven remembered Mozart's C minor concerto when he was writing his own. They share too many musical details for sheer coincidence. According to a popular anecdote, Beethoven and the pianist Johann Kramer were walking together when they heard the finale of the Mozart concerto coming from a nearby house. Beethoven stopped and explained, Kramer, Kramer, we shall never be able to do anything like that.
But in his own C minor concerto, Beethoven does something far more remarkable. He writes music that pays tribute to this great masterpiece and at the same time transcends the Mozartean model. It was conceived in a complementary rather than a competitive spirit. Mozart's untimely death spared Beethoven a head-on rivalry with the one composer he worshipped, leaving him to make his own way in Vienna. He hardly knew that Schubert existed, even though they lived in the same city for years. Once, when asked the name of the greatest living composer other than himself, he suggested Luigi Cherubini. Even 19th century listeners who thought Mozart a lightweight and Beethoven a quarrelsome revolutionary heard the resemblance in this music, both in its details as well as its spirit and sensibility. Certainly the way the soloist continues to play right after the first movement cadenza up to the final bar can be found only in the K491 among all of Mozart's piano concertos. Beethoven's opening theme, too, tosses a glance at Mozart, but on the big issues, how the music moves forward, the way it approaches the turning points in its progress, there is less agreement. As Donald Tovey pointed out, Beethoven doesn't yet seem to have figured out what Mozart always understood, that you shouldn't give too much away before the soloist enters and the drama really begins. There are touches of pure Beethoven, like the unannounced entry of the timpani just after the cadenza, a complete surprise, even though it has been thoughtfully prepared by a main theme that imitates the beating of a drum every time it appears. There's nothing Mozartean about Beethoven's choice of key for the central slow movement. E major, with its key signature of four sharps, is bold and unexpected in a concerto in C minor with three flats. For a moment, the first E major chord given to the piano alone seems all wrong, as if the soloist's hands have landed in the wrong place. At the same time, it's fresh and irresistible. Where Mozart generally wrote Andante or Adagio, Beethoven dictates Largo. Deliberately paced and magnificently expansive, this is the first great example of a new kind of slow movement. Throughout the rest of the 19th century, composers would profit from remembering this music, although it's arguable that no one after Beethoven ever thought of anything like the lovely, fully blossomed romanticism of the duet for flute and bassoon over plucked strings and piano arpeggios midway through. The way Beethoven glances over the final double bar of this movement at the opening of the finale also is new. The two movements aren't yet literally connected, as they will be in later music, but Beethoven uses all of his wit and wisdom to carry us from one to the next. He capitalizes on the fact that G-sharp is the same note on the keyboard as A-flat, and he uses that note to pivot from the remote world of E major back to C minor. Our ears easily make the connection, and the rondo finale races forward full of pranks and good humor. Having convinced his listeners and himself, perhaps, that E major is no stranger to C minor, Beethoven returns to the key of his slow movement in the middle of the finale, as if it were the most logical move of all. Beethoven recovers C minor again, but after a brief cadenza, he tears off at a gallop into C major, where he has been headed all along. 
It's not clear why this concerto, evidently designed for Beethoven's first Vienna concert in April 1800, wasn't performed that night. Perhaps it simply wasn't ready. The manuscript suggests that last-minute changes were still being made before its premiere on April 5, 1803, when Beethoven also introduced his new Second Symphony and the oratorio Christ on the Mount of Olives. Even then, the music was more firmly fixed in Beethoven's mind than on the page. Ignaz von Seyfried, the new conductor at the Theater an der Wien, agreed to turn pages for Beethoven, only to discover that it was easier said than done. I saw almost nothing but empty leaves. At most, on one page or another, a few Egyptian hieroglyphs, wholly unintelligible to me, and scribbled down to serve as clues for him. He played nearly all of the solo part from memory, since, as was so often the case, he had not had time to put it all down on paper. He gave me a secret glance whenever he was at the end of one of those invisible passages, and my scarcely concealed anxiety not to miss the decisive moment amused him greatly, and he heartily laughed at the jovial supper which we ate afterwards. Nearly a year later, Beethoven finally got around to writing down the piano part for a performance given by his student, Ferdinand Ries, who provided his own cadenza. The first reviewer of the third concerto commented that the piece should succeed even in places like Leipzig, where people were accustomed to hearing the best of Mozart's concertos. He continued, suggesting that this music would always require a capable soloist who, in addition to everything one associates with virtuosity, has understanding in his head and a heart in his breast. Otherwise, even with the most impressive preparation and technique, the best things in the work will be left behind. Those are wise words, particularly from a man working in a field that, to this day, expects sound judgments on new music heard cold. What no critic could predict is that this concerto, rooted in the previous century and a pioneer in its own, would continue to speak as strongly and directly to the centuries that followed. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 2. And now, on to Felix Mendelssohn's Symphony No. 3, The Scottish Symphony, a work lasting about 43 minutes. Among Mendelssohn's earliest teachers was Johann Gottlob Samuel Rosel, a landscape painter who thought his bright young pupil might make his living painting and drawing rather than writing and performing music. From an early age, Mendelssohn displayed many talents. He wrote poetry, sketched madly, and, as we more readily remember, began composing early enough to write two enduring masterpieces as a teenager, the octet and the overture to Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Mendelssohn did not lose his fondness for landscape painting once his musical talent began to overshadow his other gifts, although he drew his most famous pictures in music. Travel always ignited Mendelssohn's inspiration. In 1823, after a family vacation in Switzerland, the 14-year-old composer used Swiss folk songs in two string symphonies. He made his first important solo journey in 1829 at his parents' urging, and it, too, produced musical benefits. Mendelssohn left Berlin on April 10, 1829, to join his friend Karl Klingemann in England. While in London, Mendelssohn found time to play four concerts before the two set off for Edinburgh, and there in Scotland he met Sir Walter Scott. Mendelssohn had read all his novels and enjoyed 
a bagpipe competition there. On July 30th, 1829, the first idea for this Scottish symphony came to him. He and Klingemann had gone to Holyrood, the obligatory tourist attraction where Mary, Queen of Scots, supposedly fell in love with the poor Italian lutenist David Rizzio, who subsequently was murdered by the Queen's husband. Mendelssohn wrote home, We went in the deep twilight to the palace where Queen Mary lived and loved. There is a little room to be seen there with a winding staircase leading up to it. That is where they went up and found Rizzio in the little room, dragged him out, and three chambers away is a dark corner where they killed him. The adjoining chapel is now roofless. Grass and ivy grow abundantly in it, and before the ruined altar Mary was crowned Queen of Scotland. Everything around is broken and moldering, and the bright sky shines in. I believe... I found the beginning of my Scotch symphony there today. So wrote Mendelssohn. Where tourists today take photos with their mobile phones, Mendelssohn jotted down the melody that would preserve this moment for his symphonic scrapbook. Felix and Carl were quickly off to see other sites, including Fingal's Cave in the Hebrides, where he wrote out another famous melody as it came to him. In a letter dated later that year, he said, The Scotch symphony and all the Hebrides matter is building itself up step by step. In 1830, after a short visit back home in Berlin, Mendelssohn made another trip, this time to Italy at the suggestion of Goethe, whom he had befriended when he was 12 and the great poet, 72, where he was sidetracked by the beginnings of an Italian symphony. From Rome, he wrote that the two symphonies were haunting his brain, as he put it, and later that they had begun to assume more definite shape. He managed to find time to complete the Hebrides Overture while in Rome. Work on the Italian symphony progressed rapidly, and it was the first to be finished. The Scottish symphony alone is not yet quite to my liking, he wrote to his sister Fanny in February 1831. If any brilliant idea occurs to me, I will seize it at once, quickly write it down, and finish it at last. Either Mendelssohn ran out of brilliant ideas, which seems unlikely given his track record, or else life intervened because it was another ten years before he picked up the unfinished score and swiftly brought it to a conclusion. It was the last symphonic work he completed. By then, this symphony meant more to him than scenery, and by the time of the first performance in March 1842, Mendelssohn had dropped its Scottish nickname. Indeed, to unsuspecting audiences, there is nothing overtly Scottish about the music. In his review, Robert Schumann mistakenly believed this was Mendelssohn's Italian symphony and wrote how its beauty made him regret that he had never gone to Italy. Mendelssohn had sworn off nationalistic music ever since visiting Wales, where he was driven mad by harps and hurdy-gurdies at every turn, incessantly playing Welsh melodies he described as vulgar, out-of-tune trash. We are probably safe in detecting the mists of the Scottish Highlands in Mendelssohn's haunting opening measures, for this is the music conceived in the deep twilight at Holyrood. Mendelssohn cautioned against dramatic readings, but how many listeners still find bagpipes, Gaelic melodies, and Highland flings in this symphony? 
There are four movements played without pause. A snatch of the slow introduction returns at the end of the first movement to lead us toward the high gymnastics of the scherzo that follows. Only a flicker of light separates that movement from the first doleful chords of the adagio. Later, the finale also breaks in without warning. There are many exquisite touches. The opening introduction with its swelling wind chords, colored at first only by the sound of violas, contains some of Mendelssohn's most expressive and profound music. The body of the movement, in sonata form, sustains the sense of urgency and drama. Near the end of the development section, the cellos begin a broad new melody accompanied only by a scattering of chords that carries into the recapitulation, adding a wonderful counterpoint to the main theme. The scherzo is a model of lightness and grace at lightning speed, even when the entire orchestra joins the dance fortissimo. The slow movement, one of Mendelssohn's many songs without words, is interrupted several times by fierce martial music, suggesting that the finale is assembled and waiting on the horizon. Even Mendelssohn admitted that his A minor finale is warlike. Although two themes do battle each other, the contest throughout remains civilized and ultimately fades to a peaceful truce. The grand conclusion comes unannounced with a switch to A major and 6-8 time and a majestic affirmative new theme waving the flag of victory. Program notes by Philip Husher on Mendelssohn's Symphony No. 3, The Scottish Symphony. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.